One of the reasons I love adoption is it helps us understand our relationship with God. We have a very personal example in our family. When Harper came into our family, legally, emotionally, she is ours. She is a part of our family. There's nothing she can do to lose that. Even though she wasn't born to us, even though she is not our biological child, she is ours. We were even asked before adopting her, what would you do if? And we were asked this by several people at several different occasions, and you can think of all the different scenarios that the world might present that would make someone disown someone else. I didn't realize there were so many different scenarios, but apparently there are a lot of different scenarios that the world has where they believe you might have the right to disown someone, or they might think a Christian would disown someone. And the answer was always the same for us. We will love her like she is our own child, because that is what she is. She is our own child. We will love her like our own child, no matter what. Now, I'll never forget the day that we picked her up. Foster care is kind of this crazy thing. If you're not familiar with foster care, it's a really crazy aspect of our world, of our culture. So we picked her up at a gas station at 10 p.m. And I want to give... A lot of grace to our social workers. These social workers had been working with her family the entire day. They were tired. They were worn out. They wanted, and this is every time we picked up a a kid, it it was usually at night. And usually the foster, the social workers had been working very hard. Usually they were trying to do everything they could to help the parents keep the kid. And usually by the end they were just exhausted. Because they had exhausted every single route for the parent to keep the child. And they didn't want to pull the child from the parents. But by the end of the day, at 10 p.m., they knew that that child would not be safe with those parents. So it was dark. We met up at a gas station. They didn't even check our IDs, which felt weird. We were like, wait... Do you guys even know who we are? (laughs) It felt really shady, in all honesty. And I think that kind of highlights how uh, this is not how it was supposed to be. When God created, he didn't create with this in mind. He didn't create with broken family units in mind. And yet it is a signal that this world has rebelled against him. It is a signal that the world is broken because of our own rebellion against God's design. Now, we can look at those big examples, right? We can see the big examples of a broken family and say, clearly that's it. Clearly someone has rebelled against God's design. But you and I, we rebel in small ways all the time, too when we're impatient with someone, when we're wearing the old clothes that we talked about last week, that is breaking God's design. And oftentimes we don't see the full ramification. We don't see the full impact of our own rebellion. Harper's biological parents, they got to see the full impact of their rebellion against him 
by losing their kids because their kids were no longer in a safe environment. But that's a signal that, that they, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. So we picked her up at 10 p.m. in a dark parking lot. She came with a car seat, one change of clothes, and an Oakland Raiders bag. I'm not saying anything bad against our Oakland Raiders fans, but that's what she had. Her head was flat in the back because they were living in, her, in a car. She didn't have a bed, and so she just stayed in that car seat all the time. And from so much time in a car seat, her, the back of her head became flat. And she never made noise. She didn't cry. And at first, we would get these compliments. It, would, it happened all the time. Wow, that she's such a good baby because she's so quiet. Ba- quiet babies aren't necessarily good babies. Babies cry for a reason. And the reason is they have needs, and they don't know how to communicate. They can't talk. They can't say, my diaper's wet. They can't say, I'm hungry. And so how do they get their needs met? They cry. And as parents, you figure out. As mother, you typically figure out, oh, this is what my baby needs. In fact, I know some parents that are so good, some parents are so good at hearing their, they're just in tune with the cry that they can hear like, oh, that cry is a hungry cry. Oh, that cry is a soiled diaper cry. And they just know because they're so in tune. I was never that in tune, I'll just be honest with you. I had to troubleshoot every single time. So she, it wasn't that she was good. She didn't know good or bad. She didn't know that, cry, that she wasn't supposed to cry or that she was supposed to cry. She cried because she needed her needs met. Her needs weren't getting met. So she quit crying. The social workers called that failure to thrive. So her silence was just another reminder of the brokenness of this world. A baby not crying, a baby not making noise, is just another reminder that we live in a broken world. So when she started to cry, when she started to voice that she was upset, it was like music to our ears. Babies' noises Even the crying should be a sign of life and should be something to rejoice in. So she came to our house and became one of us. And as she became one of us, she realized there was nothing she could do to lose our love. She started to become more of what God created her to be. A happy, healthy little girl. She didn't have to try harder. She didn't have to work for her personality. As she became more secure in our love for her, our love for her began to change how she acted, began to change her personality. I think the same is true for our spiritual walk. And I think it helps us understand our relationship with God. When we are lost in our sins, when we are lost in our brokenness and pain, 
they are expressed, our brokenness and our pain are expressed in different behaviors. Typically in rebellion against God. But when we find God's grace, when we become a part of His family, our behavior begins to change naturally. And the more secure we become in who we are and who He is, and specifically who we are because of who He is, the more our behaviors naturally change. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our series uh, by him, for him, uh, study through Colossians. We're up to Colossians 3, 12 through 17 today. I'll read through it and then we'll dig in. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this section begins with, put on then. This uh, is linking this section back with what we studied last week. Last week we saw this clothing metaphor where he says, put off and put on. And that was a metaphor for taking off the old, dirty clothes and putting on the new clothes. So last week, I wore some old, dirty clothes. I wore my, my wood-cutting pants that are, are cut up because I accidentally, you know, got, let the chainsaw get a little close. Thankfully, it didn't cut my leg. It just cut my pants. But it had a big hole in it, and then it had all this grease and just grime on it. And not many people noticed that I was wearing old, dirty clothes. But this week already, several people have made a mention of the clothes I'm wearing, which kind of signals to me maybe I need to change my style a little bit. (laughs) But that's the metaphor. Take off those old, dirty clothes. Those old, dirty clothes are certain behaviors. Because you've been made new, because you're a new creation, take off the old, dead clothes that you used to have and put on these new clothes. Put on these spectacular clothes that Christ has given you. So take off the old clothes, the behaviors that represent the dead person, and put on new clothes, behaviors that represent someone who has been changed by Christ. So he, he links us back in with this clothing metaphor, and then he gives us three titles. These three titles are God's chosen ones, holy, and beloved. So Paul addresses the church in Colossae, and I would say all believers as God's chosen ones, holy, and beloved. These three titles have all have roots in Deuteronomy 7, where God calls Israel his chosen, his elect, his beloved, and his holy people. This helps us understand these titles in terms of the church. Though we can apply them individually, they apply to us because we are a part of the church, his body. So how do we become holy and beloved and chosen? 
we put our faith in Christ. And at that moment, He makes us holy, beloved, and chosen. So, God's chosen. Another term for this is God's elect. Meaning to be chosen for a specific purpose. So he chose Israel. He called Israel his elect because he had chosen Israel for a very specific purpose. To declare his glory to the world and through which he would come and redeem all of humanity. That was the purpose that he had called Israel together for. So they are his elect. But he calls the church his chosen, his elect. And the church he has chosen, he has elected for a very specific purpose, and that is to spread the gospel. That the gospel would be told to everyone. That all would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. That is the purpose for the church. That is the purpose for your life as well, if you are a part of the church. There is a greater purpose than just living for today. There is a greater purpose than gaining material wealth. There is a greater purpose than just searching for comfort. The greater purpose is that all would come to know Christ, that we would be able to share the gospel with as many as possible. And that we would continue to grow in Him. The term holy means to be set aside for God. He has set us aside for Himself. He has dedicated us and set us apart for His distinct purposes. And then finally, the third title is Beloved. You are loved. God loves you. With a greater love than you can even comprehend, He loves you. When you feel like no one loves you, when you feel alone and you feel lost, remember that God loves you. So because we are chosen, holy, and loved, Paul will give us a list of behaviors that we should put on like clothing. So last week we looked at those behaviors that we put off, that we take off, that we shed. Now we've got new clothing. Have you ever worn some clothing that you just felt like a million bucks in? You just, you just knew you looked good in? My sister, she was a fantastic college student. I wasn't that fantastic of a college student, but she was a fantastic student. She studied hard, and she would always dress up for test day. And I always thought that was so weird. And she always looked at me and she said, Aaron, look good, do good. <laughs> so she just felt like she had extra confidence because she would dress up. I think there's something similar going in here, right? Like, you put on these new clothes that God has given you, and it kind of changes the way you feel about yourself. But, it's not that you do it. It's that He has given you the clothes. He has given you these new clothes that you can wear. So, we have a list of these new clothes, and the list goes, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. A compassionate heart is a, is a heart that is aware of others' suffering. Compassion is being aware of others' suffering. So even if they are thought to be the enemy, it's so easy for us to get caught up in this culture of having enemies, that, that the other side is the enemy. 
We need to have compassion for them. We need to understand that they are made in the image of God and are suffering. So let's no longer treat them as the enemy, but as someone that has been taken captive by the enemy. Yes, there are wicked people that are doing wicked things right now. And they are doing it because they are captives of the enemy. As a church, our job is not to yell them down. Our job is to show them Christ. And to show them what an authentic community growing in Christ looks like. I think when we look around, we see a community, we see culture, especially in America, we see a culture that is craving authentic community, and yet we don't know how to get it, so we oftentimes settle for community light. Community light is not just social media, although that's a part of it, but community light is showing up to events and thinking that you have true community, but really you're, you're not really tied together. You don't have anything that really binds you and unifies you. And so you come together, you kind of pat each other on the back until someone upsets you, until someone offends you, and the second that happens, what do you do? I'm done with that community and I'll move on. And as a result, your growth is actually stunted. There are so many American Christians whose spiritual growth is stunted because they church hop from church to church, never actually entering into true, authentic community, never bearing with one another, never really working through the pain. And so they never grow. But we're called to something more, and we're called to model what authentic community looks like to the world. And that's what the world is actually craving. Someone who knows your flaws and loves you anyway. And we'll get to what I mean by love in just a second. But we've got compassionate hearts and then kindness. Sometimes translated as benevolence, it is the action that that compassion produces. That's what kindness is. So when you have compassion for someone, when you can when you can see their suffering, when you can try to understand their suffering, that produces benevolence. That's the action that, ca- that compassion produces. So you begin to help others. And then the next on the list is humility. Humility is the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately. I think oftentimes we get the word humility wrong. We have a bad definition of humility, and we think humility is just thinking low of yourself. Humility is just beating yourself up, and that's not humility. That's actually false humility. Just thinking lowly of yourself is false humility. What I mean by that is let's say Michael Jordan came in here. Now, we all know, hopefully we all know, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time, okay? I'm just going to say that definitively, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. You may want to argue with me on that. I'm just going to tell you you're wrong. Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. Let's just pretend he comes in here. And he decides that he wants to play some basketball after the service with our teenage boys. They go out there. They start shooting some hoops with the greatest of all time. And he decides, he just kind of has this confession. He's like, guys, I just got to get this off my chest. I've actually never been good at basketball. I'm a pretty horrible basketball player. 
he would get called out immediately, wouldn't he? No, that is false humility. That is not an accurate picture of who Michael Jordan is. When you're the greatest basketball player of all time, it's okay to say, yeah, I'm pretty good at basketball. Yeah, I've won a couple MVPs a time or two in the NBA, you know, the, the, the most difficult uh, league to be in when it comes to basketball. Yeah, I'm pretty good. So we would call that false humility if he said that he was pretty good. Now, let's say he took that one, let's say he, he didn't say that he was bad at basketball. Let's just say he was playing with them and he's like, guys, I have a confession to make. I need to get this off my chest. Never once have I sinned. Well, we'd call him out on that too. We'd like, sorry, Buster. I've seen some of your basketball games. I know you've sinned. I've seen it. Right? So, so false humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's also not thinking highly of yourself. It is having an appropriate valuing or assessing of oneself, in particular, with a proper view of who God is. In fact, we can't have a true humility, we can't have a true assessment of ourselves without having the right assessment of who God is. So once we figure out who God is and who he has created us to be, and once we figure out how our relationship interacts with God, then we can actually have appropriate humility. So appropriate humility, it partly is admitting that we have failed, that we aren't perfect. And that if it weren't for God, we would be slaves to sin. That we would be captivated by our sin, and that we couldn't break free from our sin. That's a part of humility. But it's also recognizing that we are original masterpieces of God. That Ephesians 2.10 is accurate when he calls us God's original masterpiece. Which is amazing to me. When you think about artists that you know, that's just amazing artists. How many real masterpieces do they crank out in their lifetime? And then look around. Just in this sanctuary alone, we have what? Maybe 80 to 100 of God's masterpieces. Think about how how often God is cranking out these amazing masterpieces. So part of our humility is recognizing that we are an original masterpiece of God and that he loves us enough to die for us. So when we rebelled, it was kind of like destroying his masterpiece. There's a a popular trend right now among some activists to go throw cans of tomato soup on masterpieces in museums. When we're stuck in our sin and rebelling against God, it's like we're doing that to the creator of the universe. We are destroying his masterpiece. But when we put our faith in him, when we trust the price that he paid on the cross for our rebellion and sin, he begins the restoration process. He begins to restore us to become that original masterpiece that he created us to be. So that's humility. Next on the list is meekness. Meekness is also known as gentleness. When I think of gentleness, it's defined as strength under control. When I think of gentleness, I think of my grandpa who was a beekeeper. Now, he loved bees. And he he really loved the product that bees produce, that honey. Uh, but he also, because he loved the product, he loved the producer. And he loved bees, 
he didn't ever want to kill him. And I remember going out to the bees with him and taking some of those hives apart and watching how carefully he handled those bees. Because although he could crush any one of them between his finger and his thumb at any moment, he never wanted any of those bees to die. So very carefully he handled those bees. Oftentimes people confuse gentleness with weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. It is strength under control and the ability to handle with care. And last on this list is patience. Patience is contented endurance. The ability to endure hardship with contentedness. Sometimes we think of patience as something where you just kind of white-knuckle it and you get through it even though you're underneath it all, you're burning up. That's not real patience. That's just the ability to push through something. Patience is enduring an uncomfortable situation with contentedness. And then he goes on. So these are the new clothes. He goes on to kind of describe the environment in which we wear the new clothes. And he goes on in verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So this term, bearing with one another, means to endure an uncomfortable or a difficult person. This recognizes that there are people that will rub us the wrong way. Because we are all different personalities, there are some people that we will get along with better than others. There will be people who just annoy us. And we are called to endure them, to bear them. To bear by definition means to tolerate something you don't like. Our tendency is to avoid the person we don't like. Our tendency is to avoid the person that we might find annoying and drift towards those we do like. And then we claim as a church that we are bearing with one another. You're not bearing with one another. You've just drifted towards people that are easy to bear. You've drifted towards people that you get along with. That's not really bearing with each other. That's actually part of the old clothing. Find people just like me, get along with them, and then call myself bearing so I feel good about myself. So that's not it. Finding people that you get along with just to hang out with them, that's not bearing with one another. We as a church should be pursuing those people that kind of make us cringe, that make us feel uncomfortable, that we wouldn't necessarily desire to hang out with. One of the first things that come to my mind is our culture loves the generation wars. We have people in our culture from different generations that love to make fun of each other. Well, sure, you're good with texting, but can you drive a stick? I don't need to drive a stick. They don't even make those anymore. When I get old enough, they're going to have self-driving cars. But can you text? You know, and it goes back and forth. And, and we hear these arguments all the time, and they're silly little arguments. And yet, they divide our culture. They divide our generation. And we're not called to divide ourselves up by demographic. 
It is true, there are differences in generations. But we should appreciate the differences in generations. We should appreciate what the older generation has to bring. Every second Sunday I talk about how much I enjoy our men's breakfast and how much I enjoy sitting around the table with older men and getting to hear the wisdom they have to offer. And sometimes they don't think they have any wisdom to offer, and yet I sit and I listen, and I'm telling you they have a lot of wisdom to offer. And young people have a lot to offer too. And I'll tell you, I I look at the generation growing up, and I know some people just start to feel like America's going to go all awry, and I see a lot of hope, and I see a lot of depth in this next generation, this upcoming generation. And I have a lot of excitement for this upcoming generation. There's a lot every generation has to offer, and we should be embracing them. So we're not called to split each other up by demographics. And then he continues on, And if one has complaint against another, forgive each other. As, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So complaint here means grievance. So this person has offended you or has harmed you in some way. So what is the command if someone has offended you or has harmed you in some manner? And I think it's important to point out that this is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not good advice. I know some people talk about forgiveness because it's good for you, and I think that's true. But it's not just good advice like forgive somebody because it will actually take the weight off your shoulder. That might be true, but this isn't just good advice. It is a command to forgive. Now, to forgive means to no longer hold that grievance against someone. So when someone has offended you, you are commanded to give them, to forgive them, to no longer hold it against them. So you don't continue to bring it up. You don't continue to explain the situation to others and to justify how you were right and they were wrong to others. You don't continue to wrestle with it in your own heart. You stop holding it against the other person. But I think we also need to be clear that this does not mean to be reconciled. This does not mean to have a renewed relationship. There are some offenses and there are some grievances that are actually abuse. And to be reconciled to that person who has never changed would mean to put yourself through that abuse again. And that is not what God is calling you to. Now, if the person has changed, if the person has repented, then there is a possibility for reconciliation. But if there is no repentance, we're still called to forgive. There's no disclaimer here. Forgive one another, unless that person never apologized. Forgive one another, unless that person repented or didn't repent. There's no disclaimer. It's a command to forgive. But that command to forgive simply means no longer hold the offense against them. It does not mean to renew that relationship and pick it back up like nothing ever happened. To resubmit yourself to abuse over and over again. That's not what this means. It means to no longer hold it against them. So then he continues on. 
Oh, wait. So this is such an important piece of our new clothing that Paul goes on to link it to our forgiveness with Christ as the par excellence. And he continues on. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So Jesus is the par excellence here. He is the example that we are to follow. Just as Christ has forgiven us, he could have held a grudge, he could have made us pay, but instead he forgave and he paid the price for our sin and rebellion that broke our relationship with him. So that's the par excellence for us with forgiveness. And then he continues on, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the wording here implies that love is like the overgarment, binding all the other clothing together. Love is the foundation for all the other clothing. It is the baseline for everything else that you are called to put on. Without love, the rest of the clothing is just a show and will quickly fall off. Without love, you will not be compassionate. Without love, you will not be patient. Without love, you won't be uh, humble. Without love, you cannot forgive. Without love, you cannot bear with one another. We need love to bring it all together. So what is love? We hear it all the time. We hear that all that matters is love. We hear that love is love. I think our problem is our language and our culture has a wishy-washy general love that really means affection or enjoyment. Well, oftentimes when we hear the term love, what, we, what they really mean is I have an affection for you or I have an enjoyment of you. So for an example, I love steak. I love mountain biking. I love my kids and I love my wife. My parents are here today. I love my mom and I love my dad. Are all those loves equal? Boy, I hope not. Can all those loves be applied the same way? Wow, I really hope not. I better know how to differentiate between those loves, right? I better not confuse my love for mountain biking with my love for my wife. Or my love for my mom with my love for my kids or my wife. So we better know how to differentiate between loves. The love here is not just a deep affection or enjoyment. When I talk about loving steak, I mean I really enjoy steak. I really enjoy mountain biking. But the love here is something totally different. It's not just a deep affection, although I think this type of love produces a deep affection, but it's not merely affection. The world standard is I find you enjoyable, therefore I love you. But what happens when that love or when that enjoyment ends? Love ends. And then the two are separated. We see this all the time, and it's because we've got a bad definition of love. So this love that Paul is talking about here is a love that chooses the person first. And as I choose you, I begin to, bear, I begin to see that you bear the image of God. I begin to see all the ways God has created you as a unique masterpiece, and then I begin to enjoy you. But the enjoyment is always rooted in the choosing. So this is a choosing to love the person no matter what. 
choosing to love and do the right thing for the person no matter what. And as you choose to do that, then that deep affection begins. And this love is the perfect bonding agent. It is like the super glue of the new clothing. It brings all these aspects together and fastens them. It binds them together. And then he goes on and he he finishes the sections out with four imperatives, four commands for us to live by, starting in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So the word rule here means to have control. Last week we talked about Black Friday, that we could pretend the world's religions were on a Black Friday sale, and everyone is scrambling to get the best deal. Year after year, we hear about a killing on Black Friday, someone getting trampled to death, because everyone is hustling to get theirs. And we kind of see that with the world religions. Everyone is hustling and trampling other people to death because they want to get what they think is going to produce the greatest amount of happiness in their life. This is not being ruled by peace, but by anxiety. What if you get it wrong? What if you miss out? So you're not being ruled by peace. Peace means shalom. It means more than just lack of conflict. It means to thrive, to flourish. Christ is taking us out of that shopping mall, out of the Black Friday cell. We no longer need to have anxiety. We no longer need to scramble to get ours because we can thrive, we can flourish in Christ. So we can let that peace that Christ has provided rule our hearts. When we do that, we lose our anxiety. We don't need to fight others because we're not afraid. So when we have anxiety, when we are fighting with others, we need to ask the question, am I letting the peace of God control my heart? Or is there an idol in my life that has control? Which brings us to the second imperative. And the second imperative is simple. Be thankful. That's it. It's a very simple command. And once again, if you are not thankful, that is an indicator that something else is ruling your heart. That brings us to the third imperative. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So this is the second imperative or command that involves us actively letting God do something in our heart. Notice that the wording here, it's let God. So there's an imperative that we are to let God do the transforming. There's an imperative to let God come in and begin to control. We talked about this quite a bit in Ephesians, to let God dwell. Let Christ dwell in you richly. This term dwell means to have ownership, to move in. It's contrasted with renting. And too often we let God rent our heart. Now, if you're a renter, if you want to paint, you got to call the owner to paint, right? If you want to knock down a wall, your owner's going to say, get out of here, you're crazy. But when you are the owner, you can paint whatever crazy color you want. When you are the owner, you can tear down a drop ceiling and decide that you're going to do a full-on kitchen remodel. 
which is what Jen and I are doing right now. That's, that's the difference of ownership. So he's saying, let God own your heart. So we're going to let the peace of Christ rule our heart, call the shots, but we're also going to let God take full ownership of our life, full ownership of our hearts. It's no longer letting God like say, God, do you have permission to paint? God, do you have permission to tear down this heart? God, I really, I, I want you to own like the kitchen because it would be great if my kitchen was cleaned up, but this room over here, I've got a closet over here that I don't want you to touch. It's a mess. It's where I hide all the junk all week long. It's absolutely trashed, and I don't want you to touch it, God. Too often, that's where we go. And, and what Paul is encouraging us here is to let him have total control. God owns all of it. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he gives us ways that we can do that. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So to teach is to impart knowledge, and to admonish is to counsel and to warn. Both of these are rooted in the word. So we are constantly redirecting or recalibrating our lives based on the Bible. It's like the compass for our life, where we have to constantly look back towards it. For those of us that might be directionally challenged and don't use compasses, it's like the Maps app on your phone. When I'm riding mountain bikes in a new area, I'm, I'm constantly using an app called Trail Forks. And I'm constantly looking at it so I don't get lost. If I'm not looking at trail forks, I will get lost, I guarantee you. Jen has experienced the anxiety of being lost in the mountains with me. So I have to do it. And I'm constantly calibrating my path based on that app. So that's the Bible, that we should be calibrating our path. We should be submitting to it knowing that it, is, it knows better than we do. So we're looking at it to understand it. We're submitting to it. And as we do that, we are letting the peace of Christ rule our heart, and we're letting God dwell and move in to our heart. And then the result is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. So that's the result. As we begin to surrender our lives to Christ, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with an attitude of thankfulness. He closes this out with our final imperative. And this kind of sums up the entire section. You belong to Jesus. Now dress as if you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. Wear clothes as if you belong to Jesus. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now this isn't a list of a bunch of do's and don'ts, but basic principles. That as we submit to the Word, the Spirit begins to guide us in all that we do. Whatever we do is an all-encompassing term. Everything in your life, do as if you are a representative of the Lord Jesus. Do as if you are representing the new family you belong to, that you've been adopted into. You cannot lose that membership. Your adoption is permanent. So begin to act like a new member of that family. When we adopted Harper, she quickly learned that no matter what, we were going to be there 
for her. So much so that she went from not knowing that her needs would be met, so she just stopped making noise, to having the confidence and freedom to roam this church, knowing everyone here was looking out for her and ready to give her a cookie. She began to act in a new way. Not because she even realized what was going on. She didn't have to try harder to act like a new person. But because she was in a new family, a family that loved her and made her feel secure, her behavior started to naturally flow from the newness because she was loved. In the same way, God has made you new. We don't clean up our act to be made new. God has made you new. And as we remind ourselves of who he is and who we are in relation to him, and as we let him and his word have control over our hearts, we begin to dress in new clothes that he has provided. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you have freed us from our sins. You have freed us from the captivity of those old, worn-out, itchy clothes, those clothes that could never satisfy. And you have given us new clothes, that you have called us chosen and holy and loved. And Lord, we pray that as we remind ourselves that we are chosen, holy, and loved, that we would dress more and more appropriately as those that you have called holy, chosen, and loved. In your name we pray. Amen.